0: This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, which right now at the time of this recording is still not on lockdown, at least not yet. Not only is the coronavirus crisis a massive public health emergency for pretty much the entire world, but it's also a geopolitical watershed event it will no doubt have a major impact on international relations in the polar regions. So it's safe to say that the fallout of the crisis will be a central theme of this podcast for months and probably years to come. If you're interested in learning more about the management of the COVID-19 outbreak, I've also started another podcast called Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic, which you can find on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To start exploring the many dimensions of the coronavirus crisis in the Arctic, I was very happy to speak with Elon Kelman, a professor of disasters and health at University College London and at the University of Agder, Kristiansand in Norway. The interview with Elon is divided into two parts. On the next episode, we'll dive into some of the more explicitly geopolitical aspects of the crisis, such as China's ongoing coronavirus diplomacy and its implications for the Arctic. But here on this episode, Professor Kelman discusses disaster risk reduction and how the coronavirus could impact vulnerable Arctic communities, many of which were already facing significant social, economic, and public health challenges. Before talking about the situation in the Arctic, Elon briefly shares some thoughts on Antarctica.
1: So the coronavirus is obviously affecting everywhere on the planet. At the moment, last I checked, Antarctica does not have a case of it, and presumably they are going to implement some form of restrictions or monitoring to try and ensure that that does not happen. Similarly, as they are moving into the Antarctic winter, that means that there's going to be far fewer transportation connections, but conversely also means far more difficult situation if someone does become ill. So at the moment, maybe we can keep Antarctica coronavirus-free, maybe not. At least we do know that they are well-prepared for the long months without contact with the outside world in terms of supplies and in terms of medical care. So then we get to the Arctic, and this is obviously highly concerning because Greenland does have at least one case, and this is changing daily, Denmark is in a lockdown, as are many other countries. And so as the virus continues to spread and potentially reaching some isolated communities without a lot of critical care facilities and without a lot of medical personnel or equipment, this becomes a major concern for the people living there. So dealing with epidemics, dealing with pandemics in small, remote communities is not easy. And there are many factors which can also exacerbate the epidemic spread or the epidemic's impact. Part of it can also be psychological, in terms that everyone knows each other. So if someone does perish or if someone is severely ill, then that actually affects the entire community. And particularly because if it turns out to be someone with medical expertise, that can really cause problems for communities without any other possibilities to deal with uh, disease, to deal with health issues. As well, during winter in particular, but it does apply to other seasons. People in the Arctic will tend to spend a lot of time indoors, perhaps much more than in other climates. The houses, the dwellings, will tend to be very well insulated in order to keep the heat in and stop the cold penetrating, which can reduce ventilation. So when we do have an airborne virus, when we do have a virus which is spread by coughing, by sneezing, uh, sometimes in the droplets when breathing, this can lead to quite rapid spread within small communities where people are spending a lot of time indoors. And again, particularly in winter, but also applying to other seasons, because weather can be bad at any time. Simply spending time outside or trying to separate oneself is not necessarily feasible because of the weather, and there may not be a lot of infrastructure for people to disperse. The other main concern with regards to this pandemic, which many Arctic communities have, would be with respect to tourism. So as the world tourism industry shuts down and cruise ships in particular are stopping sailing, that avoids the problem of a cruise ship having infected people and turning up to some of these small Arctic communities. But we do have a project where one of the things that we've been looking at is a possibility of some sort of disease or outbreak on a cruise ship which is nearby one of the small Arctic towns or which ends up sailing there in order to get medical treatment. In particular, this project funded by the Research Council of Norway is looking at Svalbard, or Spitsbergen. So it's an archipelago which belongs to Norway, although it is governed by a unique international treaty which permits other countries to have resource rights and citizens of other signatory countries to live and work in in that area, the population is barely 3,000, probably slightly under 3,000, mainly in one settlement called Longyearbyen. But there's also two other settlements which are mainly Russian, and then a lot of scientific research stations. Cruise ships these days easily have a thousand passengers, some of them more than 3,000 passengers plus crew. So these ships are docking in Longyearbyen. They will do Arctic cruises, including Svalbard, Iceland, Greenland, other places, or they may just do a circumnavigation of Svalbard. If we're talking about 2,000, 3,000 people on board and an outbreak occurs, and then they are trying to dock in Longyearbyen, there could be more people sick or potentially sick than there are in that settlement. So if the cruise ships, which we've seen off the coast of California or Japan, if those cruise ships happen to be in the Arctic or near Stabar, then how does a community of that size actually deal with a giant cruise ship lockdown down and thousands of people worried about their own health and just trying to get out? Even with a couple of full jet flights a day, it would take several days in order to clear everyone there. And to try and keep people isolated, either moving from the ship to the community or moving from the ship to the airplane, would not be easy even the small size of a community and of a lack of facilities, particularly medical facilities. In the scenario, where a town like Longyearbyen is dealing with a large cruise ship and people have to be locked down as well as treating those who are critically ill, there is actually not a lot of scope at the moment because the people, the equipment, the facilities, the resources are not there. And then even worse, should the infection reach the community, then it's not only dealing with all of the tourists, thousands of tourists, also trying to work out how do you lock down a small community? What are your supply chains for food and for medical supplies? Is it possible to keep planes flying even as pilots and crew and air traffic controllers themselves get sick or go into isolation? So the Arctic itself, as we know, has particular disaster-related challenges and also many opportunities. When it comes to a pandemic of this level and a disease which is spreading at the rate that we are seeing, Those challenges are amplified, and there may be not many solutions except to realize that there may be a high rate of mortality, particularly amongst people who are not living there already but may be visiting.
0: Tourism is a very interesting case. The discussions about tourism lately have been concerns over if... For instance, an Arctic cruise liner gets in some sort of accident, as happened in, in Canada not too long ago, in some sort of isolated location, and it will be difficult to rescue the passengers. But this presents a whole other set of issues, this uh, pandemic scenario that uh, you're talking about, where a cruise liner is stricken by a virus, such as corona perhaps, in an isolated location that is difficult to get uh, medical help to the passengers. The flip side of this is also the problem of economic security in some of these locations that are very dependent upon tourism for their livelihood. Is that something that you look at as well? In your research is a potential um, downturn in tourism that would have uh, economic effects in some of these uh, isolated communities that depend on tourism for much of their income.
1: We have seen a lot of rhetoric in the past years about the Arctic opening up and the Arctic being the next playground. A lot of this is relating to resource extraction, but there's no doubt that tourism also... The industry in the South has been pushing this agenda and a lot of people in the Arctic are hoping that it will improve their quality of life and will generate many livelihoods. Tourism research has always recognized the difficulties and the challenges of tourism dependence. This has been written off extensively all around the Arctic and there are plenty of projects which are going on where people say, yeah, tourism provides opportunities and income, absolutely. Tourism can bring in people, who then get to respect the Arctic much more, understand Arctic peoples and understand Arctic challenges. The converse is whether all the Arctic cultures and Arctic living then change in order to match tourist expectations, rather than tourists changing to match Arctic expectations. And the real fundamental challenge becomes then this dependency. Particularly, there are so many small and medium enterprises in tourism around the Arctic region. They have very small margins. They don't often have business continuity plans or even business management plans. This is one person or two people, owner-operated, maybe with a couple of employees, maybe not even that, and they very much rely on the steady flow of tourists. So as we are seeing around the world, one real impact of coronavirus is that many businesses simply have no contingency and had no ability to have contingency. Those people those owners are going to be in severe trouble and we're going to see a lot of bankruptcies. This very much then applies to knock-on effects, such as the fact that people now, to a large degree, are not permitted to travel for tourism, particularly up to the Arctic, because most of the Arctic countries have some form of restriction or lockdown. And over the long term, it's then a real question about whether or not these businesses can survive. Do they go bankrupt and other people step in, or do they found some other business? Do they realize that, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to rely only on tourism, because in the past 19 years, this is the third time that we've seen major, major restrictions in the north on flying. So the first was 9-11, where American airspace was closed, which had significant knock-on effects. The second was in 2010, when Icelandic volcanic ash shut down most of European airspace for several days. And now we're seeing a close-to-worldwide stoppage of commercial flights. If you are a small business owner operator with small margins in an isolated community with unreliable supply chains, which is frequent in the Arctic, maybe you're actually thinking that relying on external funds, relying on tourism, is not a good idea. So, this may be good in that tourism does not take over the Arctic and tourists do not continue any form of destruction of Arctic cultures. On the other hand, we still owe Arctic peoples livelihoods, opportunities and different approaches to make income. Ultimately, for me, I think it's a balance. We should never eliminate tourism. We should never rely on tourism. How to achieve that balance in Arctic communities, recognizing that supply chains may shut down at any time and that tourists and tourist flows may not be able to reach the Arctic at any time, is a difficulty. And that's where I would simply have to sit down with Arctic people, sit down with the companies, sit down with the operators and say, look, what are your actual needs? Do you want a contingency plan? Do you have interruption insurance? Or can you take the hit and simply move on to other livelihoods? A lot of our work on our tourism has suggested that the key is having a variety of livelihoods. So any individual, rather than them putting all their stakes into one business, or all their stakes into one season, or all their stakes into one form of tourism, consider multiple forms of tourism and multiple forms of livelihoods. That has its costs. that has its challenges, but it does mean that when tourism is possible, they gain that income, they gain the opportunity, that if anything happens, at least save other possibilities and fallbacks so that they don't get financially ruined and they don't have the mental health effects of the stress which all these difficulties entail. The coronavirus situation therefore, for the Arctic, particularly tourism, has shown that we need to be very cautious of this rhetoric of the Arctic gold rush very cautious of the assumptions that the Arctic is now open for business and people are going to flock there forever, and particularly cautious of the assumption that people coming in on day trips or week trips are simply cash cows who are going to reinvigorate the Arctic, make people rich, and make them go forward. Instead, let's go for balance. Let's accept tourism as part of the Arctic livelihoods equation, but definitely not rely on it, because all livelihoods have advantages and limitations.
0: That's very interesting. And one of the other uh, livelihoods that some areas in the Arctic put a lot of uh, hope into is uh, science and education, particularly Svalbard, one of the places that uh, you've done uh, research with this project. So, Ellen, do you think that that is also something that perhaps should be rethought? Because much of the science and education activities in Svalbard and and other places in the Arctic as well is based upon international researchers coming from all over the world into these small uh, Arctic locations to conduct worthwhile, no doubt, worthwhile scientific research, but also uh, in situations like this, perhaps uh, not having the, the access that uh, would allow them to do so.
1: Science and education are very important livelihoods also. Again, any approach has advantages and limitations. So we also have to say, well, how many researchers do the communities want? And what type of researchers? Longyearbyen and Saabard has done very well in terms of building a wonderful university center creating interdisciplinary approaches and teams, and also having education programs which help the next generation of scientists. What they have found is that they then become overwhelmed with requests, and there are too many people for the community support, especially the scientific community, who want to come in and do different forms of research on Sabah, on the different countries' scientific stations, and also in one of the northernmost towns, Mjölösung, which is a flight from Svalbard or going there by ship. So again, it becomes a balance. How do we turn away dedicated, committed, bright researchers who are trying to work with the Svalbard community and do science on Svalbard in order to help the rest of the globe? On the other hand, in the same way we don't want tourists taking over, we don't necessarily want scientists, researchers, or students taking over. So that's where it really becomes a balance. And maybe if other towns are interested, they might be able to adopt and emulate the long year the stop arm model. Create a university center, ensure that there are limits put on to the type of research and the amount of research which can be done. Absolutely have risk assessments and safety because that is paramount. And then say, well, what, what will happen to the community? How will it change? How do we want it to change? And how can we ensure that the scientists serve the community much more than the community serving the scientists? So, yes, science, to some degree, can be a form of tourism. And so we have to be aware that bringing in people from the outside has very strong advantages and also causes changes which perhaps not everyone wants. So, to me, it definitely goes back to being a balance that we always need more knowledge We always want to ensure that knowledge builds up wisdom and serves humanity, serves society. The Arctic has so much to offer in terms of understanding the peoples, understanding the ecologies, understanding the physical science, understanding the histories and humanities. But it's not a laboratory. It is people's land. It is people's home. And so we need to find some sort of happy medium whereby we're helping each other, learning from each other, exchanging with each other, And we have the Arctic serving the rest of the globe, but also the rest of the globe serving the Arctic, through science, through education, absolutely through visiting and tourism, as well as businesses, but it all has to come back to the Arctic peoples whose form is there.
0: The Arctic peoples, I want to get back to that in a moment. Just a comment, uh, one, one uh, last comment on Svalbard about the idea of livelihoods. Of course, Svalbard has been very much in transition the past uh, five or ten years as uh, coal mining has been pretty much uh, eliminated from there, which was once the, the single pillar of, of all the communities in Svalbard. Now they're moving very rapidly away from coal mining towards tourism, towards science and, and education. So, of course, this, this is perhaps a very inopportune time for such a crisis to arrive on the shores of Svalbard.
1: Often, by dealing with crises, we actually can lay the foundations for long-term work and long-term approaches, which really help the people. So coronavirus is here, and it's not going to go away for some time. What's all is accepting that coronavirus is not the only epidemic which is challenging. So whether it's norovirus on a cruise ship, whether it's tuberculosis or HIV-AIDS, whether it's the epidemic of obesity and malnutrition, which affects many Arctic communities, how can we use this to say it's causing problems, people unfortunately are going to pass away for the virus, a lot more are going to have their livelihoods and finances fairly interrupted and disrupted. How can we use it to say that we want to think about the future of our community? So is it a question of really creating a much more robust and larger and wider university, which already exists in Alaska, for example, although in the last year, that university has undergone transition when the government of Alaska basically tried to cut its budget severely, impacting staff and impacting student numbers? Should we be thinking about different forms of education in Svalbard and around the Arctic? So not just university, not just research, but thinking about other approaches to lifelong education and continuing professional development. Again, so much of science, research, and education is premised on people coming from outside to a location and staying there for some time, whether it's a week, a season, or a year. With severe travel restrictions, that's a lot harder. If people are concerned about spreading epidemics and pandemics, that's a lot harder, and same with supply chains. If they're worried about too many people from outside the Arctic coming into the Arctic and taking over, that's a concern also. So yes, places are very much in transition. Whether it's economic, whether it's from coal mining, whether it's about tourism, whether it's about the number of population, and Longyearbyen also is undergoing transition in terms of recognizing, for example, avalanche danger zones and flood danger zones, and therefore reconfiguring the community to try to ensure that residences and infrastructure are not in those danger zones, rather than taking a crisis approach rather than taking a siloed approach, as in, well, what should we do about tourism separate from what we should do about avalanches, separate from what we should do about polar bears or scientists, how about a more comprehensive approach to say, who lives in the community? Who are the people and peoples? What do they want? What do they seek? Recognizing no community is homogenous, people will always disagree. And how can we bring together all these dangers and all these opportunities to come out of this crisis thinking long-term and building something which serves the people.
0: Do the dynamics of these communities differ quite a bit when it comes to crisis preparedness, crisis management, crisis recovery between an indigenous community and a, and a non-indigenous community?
1: So the Arctic has a wide variety of communities, and there are many similarities, but also many, many differences. And that's where it helps to just listen to what the people are saying and what they're seeking. There may be differences. If we go, for example, to some of the Arctic indigenous communities in Canada, their infrastructure is in a very bad state, simply because they haven't had support which they need. Their agenda and their interests, quite rightly, are related to trying to overcome the legacy of colonialism and post-colonialism. Their interests, quite rightly, are much more about autonomy, keeping their traditional knowledge, keeping their traditional ways of life, while also having the opportunities to seek out non-traditional approaches as and when is useful for them. And their agenda is very much saying that people very much like me from the South uh, and not being Indigenous should really stop telling them what to do and start listening. So if I were to go to these communities, first, I would have to be invited. Second, I doubt I would be because I really don't have a lot to offer, because they know what they're doing, they know their interests, they know their skills. But if I were invited, then it's up to me to listen and to learn and then try to push that agenda elsewhere. This is not much which I should be pushing on them. There's nothing which I should be directing them. Other communities make different decisions. So Karuna in northern Sweden, for example, has decided that they quite like the resource extraction. They recognize that the mining was undermining parts of the town and the infrastructure there. So they've made their decision that they're going to move the community and continue the resource extraction. That may or may not align with my values. Is it really for me to try to tell them that they're actually creating an environmental crisis, which they might or might not be doing? Is it really for me to try to tell them to be much more so-called sustainable or much more thinking about possible disasters which could happen when they seem quite well aware of the consequences and they've made their decision? If we go to northern Finland, Many Indigenous communities there were forced off their land in order to be flooded for reservoirs. Is there any form of restitution which is still required? Is there any way to support them in dealing with coronavirus, with other epidemics, with mental health crises, with other possible disasters based on the fact that they have been forced off their land out of their communities? So we have to be very careful about assuming there's one solution fits all we have to be very careful about assuming that someone like me can just fly in, spend a few days, understand what's going on, and make recommendations. Instead, we know that disaster risk reduction is needed. We know disaster risk management is needed. We know that crises are going to hit these communities and probably hit them unfairly disproportionately. We know that some like coronavirus or volcanic ash or a terrorist attack, which may be occurring or originate far, far away from the Arctic, They still have very clear, direct, and significant impacts. So for me, it's about the communities and the people to tell me, can I support them or not? If so, how? What do they need? And really, what are they trying to achieve over the next month, the next year, the next decade, and the next century? Then we can come together, be linking all these issues, disasters, sustainability, and health, recognize that there are many cross-cutting aspects to that which are in place within these issues, So climate change adaptation sits nicely within disaster risk reduction. We know that gender, disability, other other populations uh, very much have to be considered and have to be integrated into these issues of health, sustainability, and disaster risk reduction, including dealing with climate change. So how can we move forward on the community's terms to ensure that no one is left out in these communities, but also to ensure that someone like me is going in trying to pretend to be an expert, trying to instruct them what to do when they actually know their situation best.
0: From your research, Ellen what do you see as the role, as the proper or most effective role for national governments, talking in terms of disaster risk reduction and uh, crisis preparedness and crisis recovery?
1: For me, the primary role of national governments is, as a listener's, So it may be that many of these communities have not thought before about certain disaster crisis or emergency issues. By listening and then trying to engage in dialogue saying, well, do you think there could be more that should be done regarding disaster risk reduction, preparedness, readiness? Is there anything that we as national governments could support you in moving forward with these issues? Is there anything that you need from us? If the communities then have other needs or other priorities, then it's important to listen and perhaps suggest ways in which disaster-related issues could be integrated into the wider scope. If we look at some northern Ontario communities, for example, uh, Arctic Indigenous communities in Canada, there is absolutely an epidemic of self-harm, suicide, community violence, and substance misuse. That has to be solved. What are they going to do about coronavirus or TB or the next big global pandemic when many of their young people are trying to commit suicide every month. So this is where it's so much about listening and saying there are severe health problems already. There are severe crises, everyday crises, which are going on in many of these communities. Finland indigenous communities which were forced off their land for reservoirs. How are the people there dealing with it today? What do they want? Do they want some form of compensation? Are they okay with their livelihoods? Have they moved on? Or do they want an apology and some form of approach to make amends for what went on in the past? So it's not just about national governments telling communities you have to be ready for the meteorite strike or the earthquake or the epidemic. It's all about saying everyday disasters afflict many of these communities. Lack of running water, open sewage, no health care, poor education so then discrimination, oppression, which then leads to these epidemics of suicide, self-harm, substance misuse, and violence. So it's time for me, for national government, and of course myself and others, to have the primary role of listeners and to say, what are these communities looking for? What do they need? And how can we move forward together rather than trying to tell them what they should do?
0: That was Professor Elon Kelman of University College London and the University of Agder Kristiansand in Norway. On the next episode of the Polar Geopolitics Podcast, we'll zoom out to look at some of the geopolitical dimensions of the crisis, like the diplomatic posturing that is already in full swing. And by the way, as I mentioned at the top of the show, if you're interested in finding out more about the coronavirus crisis, I just launched a new podcast called Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic, which is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Till next time, stay safe and thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics. And please feel free to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.